In the 30-plus years since graduating from Texas A&M, you could, if you wanted to, uh, divide my long and mostly undistinguished career into two categories, working in the news media and working with the news media. And through those experiences, I got a look from all angles at the world of emergency management, whether that meant I was reporting on disasters and crises or... I was helping gather facts and develop some timely messaging to pass along to our community. And always close by were the people who had prepared and trained to respond in just the right ways. And that included people inside emergency operation centers, sort of the nerve center of response coordination and resource gathering and information dissemination. Elected officials and other decision makers are in those places getting advice during some pretty difficult moments. And I've seen that sort of thing go really well, but I've also seen it go not so well. We're lucky in Aguiland that big incidents, like the really memorable stuff, don't happen very often. But when they do, you assume and you pray that the right people are in the room making the right decisions. So in 2009, when I became communications director for the City of College Station, one of the right people in the room, as a representative of Texas A&M's emergency management function, was Monica Martinez. And what I came to recognize pretty fast back then, and certainly in the years that followed, was that Monica might have been the smartest voice among those professionals. So Monica is now the executive director of emergency management at Texas A&M. And I think there's enough to learn from Monica that we're making this a two-part interview. In this first discussion, we'll learn what being A&M's Director of Emergency Management even means and what she's responsible for, some of the experiences she's had, and what preparedness even means for Texas A&M and the surrounding community, families of our 70,000 students, and how all of that affects you and me, even when we're not even thinking about who's in the room. And then part two of our discussion, that'll be our next episode. It will focus more on what you and I and our families can do to be prepared for a variety of disasters or crises that might affect us at home and at work and even when we're on the road. Those are reasonable and affordable things that don't require you to become a disaster prepper or a survivalist. Again, that'll be part two. Welcome to Brazos Matters. I'm Jay Sokol. Director of Emergency Management at Texas A&M, Monica Martinez, are you properly prepared for this interview disaster? I am 100% prepared for this and ready to go. Thank you for being here. <laughs> Thank you for having me. Okay, so first explain what you do and what the main responsibilities of your position look like. Yeah, absolutely. So I have been involved in emergency management here at Texas A&M University for a little over 15 years now. Um, and with that, I have been part of a team of emergency management professionals who are respons responsible for helping the university plan for, train, exercise, and respond to disasters. And so from a planning standpoint, I work very closely with university departments, um, as well as our interjurisdictional inter emergency management partners in our local community to prepare our emergency plans. Um, we are part of the interjurisdictional emergency operations plan for Brazos County, along with the cities and the county, or cities and the county and the university. And what that means is we are seen from the university standpoint as equal response partners. Um, that's not really something that you see for a lot of other institutions of higher education. 
um, you know, to be seen as an equal response partner with the cities and the county. Um, but part of that reason is that, you know, Texas a is a small city, right? Mm-hmm. We have our own police department. We have our own EMS service. We have our own utility generation, right? Um, all of these different things and resources that we can bring to bear during an emergency, um, you know, because emergencies don't care about interjurisdictional boundaries, right? If it happens on campus, we're going to need our community partners. If it happens in the community, um, you know, we have things that we can do to support that response as well. And so we're very, very fortunate here in Brazos County to kind of have that working relationship with our partners. Um, Who are all the partners? Yeah. So, um, you know, Brazos County Emergency Management, um, College Station Emergency Management, Brian, all of our first responders, we think of Pyre, police, um, you know, sheriff's office, but even just public works, our volunteer organizations active in disasters. So you're thinking about Red Cross, Salvation Army, um, you know, United Way, all of those different kind of groups we work with on a daily basis um, to prepare for and plan to respond to emergencies. And you have a ton of plans to... (sighs) That are specific to a ton of things, right? Right, absolutely. So what we have is uh, we kind of follow our statewide template as far as emergency operations plans. Um, and so the county has a plan. Texas A&M University also has a specific plan for us about how we're going to respond, what university departments um, are responsible for different aspects. We have... Um, Annexes. So if you ever want to know about why we send a code maroon, that that's in our warning annex. If you want to talk about um, sheltering or evacuation, those are specific annexes that we have. Um, what we try to do is focus our plans on functional areas, right? We can't write a plan for every single disaster circumstance that can happen. But what we can do is create that foundation for how do we communicate in disasters? How do we coordinate? Who has ultimate decision making? Mm. Who has different resources that they can bring to bear, like student affairs, you know, they have access to, um, you know, their critical incident management team or others, you know, what, what do we have available on campus that people do on their daily basis that we can utilize to support us in a disaster? And that's where the planning really comes into play, right, is who are all of those people out there um, that can support something that's happening in a crisis? Right. Right. So let's back up a little bit. And I want to talk about your sort of your emergency management origin story, those first experiences that helped you realize this could be a long term career for you. What was that? Yeah. So, um, you know, I came to Texas A&M like any bright eyed freshman. Um, You know, I had plans of going to medical school. Um, That was kind of always in the back of my mind. I wanted to go to medical school. Um, I actually wanted to be a plastic surgeon for craniofacial, um, you know, kind of issues and things like that. Cleft lip and palate, all of that fun stuff. And um, I came to A&M and my first week here on campus, we had the um, MSC open house where, you know, they encourage you as an Aggie to join a student organization, um, you know, kind of put yourself out there. And as I was walking back to my dorm, the ambulance was sitting outside and there were some people in the ambulance that were like, hey, come here, come talk to us, you know, come join us. We're a student-run organization, um, you know, of professionals, but still student, primarily student-run. 
um, which really intrigued me. And I thought, you know, hey, this is something that I can do. What looks better on a med school application than, you know, having medical experience? And so I joined as a 911 dispatcher. I became trained. I did that on my free time as a student. Um, and then I went to Teeks at night um, my freshman year and started the EMT basic program so that I could eventually get certified and work on the ambulance. Um, and so that led me down the path of eventually being the medical liaison in the command post at our football games. And so once I got to that level, I could see how all of these different organizations work together um, to manage this special event. Um, and I thought it was just really amazing to see the partnerships and the planning and the coordination. Um, and that opened my eyes to emergency management. So those are high stress roles that you describe. 911 dispatcher and being an EMT like that's not for everybody but you apparently got energized by those <laughs> yeah I you know it takes a different type of person for sure I guess you could say that it does <laughs> it does no those are hard roles but but you felt very fulfilled in that right yes absolutely so the biggest events that occur in Brazos County or even in the surrounding region those happen on the Texas A&M campus so I'm wondering if you can give us a sampling of what you're doing and all the resources you're partnering with, you know, to have those right plans and annexes and so forth in place. Yeah, absolutely. You know, one of the things I always say about emergency managers is we actually don't have anything. Like typically emergency management departments are, you know, one or two people deep uh, for emergency management at AM. There's three of us total mm -hmm. to cover not only the main campus, but also our offsite teaching locations like, you know, Higher Education Center McAllen or the law school or some of the health science center campuses. Those fall under you as well? Those fall under me as wow. well. Oh, okay. Um, you know, so we don't have a lot of resources. And so the point of emergency management, in my mind, is really building those partnerships, right? I need to be able, in a disaster, to call somebody, um, you know, and say, hey, this is going on. I need support from your team. For example, if you remember the um, winter storm Uri, uh, where, you know, Texas froze over for uh -huh. that entire week. Um, you know, I'm at my house. I'm, you know, making phone calls. We needed to set up a local um, warming shelter. And I got a request from the community to set it up in Reed Arena. So mm -hmm. I have to call Reed Arena. I have to call, you know, people and say, hey, I, I need you to open up your facility. I need the Red Cross to come in, you know. And all of that is done because we build these partnerships ahead of time. Um, and so, you know, that's the thing about emergency management. We don't control the police department, the fire department, these, you know, volunteer organizations. We're really looking at building that relationship with these groups ahead of time so that when that disaster happens, we know who to call, right? Um, on campus, we work very closely with university police, transportation services, EMS, of course, um, student affairs, um, facilities, all of those different groups, um, you know, in our local community, as I mentioned earlier, our local law enforcement our local fire, our local emergency management staff, city management, um, you know, all of those kind of different partners. And then from the state and federal level, we work very closely with our um, FBI office, our local joint terrorism task force, um, and then also our um, Department of Public Safety, DPS, and the Texas Division of Emergency Management. The list of contacts you must have. <laughs> uh, that's got to be unbelievably long and thorough. Uh, but but you have to be, you have to have those relationships in place. Like you said, you don't want 
uh, crisis to be the first time somebody hears from Monica Martinez. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. I need somebody to pick up the phone when I call. Right? Yeah. Because nobody picks up a phone if you don't have that contact in your phone, right? So yeah. I need somebody to be able to like, oh, I know who this person is. They're legit. Um, this request is, you know, uh, coming through. And okay, yeah, I need to take this call. And yes, we can support this request. Is there an area of emergency management that you feel more drawn to, whether that's the preparedness side of things or the training side or the response side? And also, do you find yourself being more comfortable inside like an emergency operations center uh, or out at a scene? Like, where's your comfort? Um, well, as far as, you know, the place that or the aspect of emergency management, these are phases of emergency management that I'm really drawn to is probably the training side. Um, I feel like the training piece is really what gets us to the point that we can respond effectively. Mm. And so I do a lot of training. I do a lot of exercises, talking to different groups. Um, you know, what what would we do in these certain situations? Um, talking through it ahead of time, doing the training ahead of time is really what's going to make that difference when we're exposed to whatever the situation is, right? Um, you know, like I said earlier, you can't plan for everything. You also can't train for every single caveat. Yeah. But the point point of it is enough exposure to the types of situations we can say, oh, okay, this isn't exactly the same as what we trained about, but it's close enough that, you know, I can apply what I learned in that training or what we discussed and make a difference in this particular situation. Um, as far as, you know, where I feel the most comfortable, um, you know, for a lot of rural emergency managers, they find themselves out in the field, mm. right? As I mentioned earlier, so many emergency management teams are uh, really limited as far as how big their team is. Um, and so they're out in the field often. For me, I find myself being, you know, either in the emergency operations center or in, um, you know, with our policy group. One thing that I didn't mention earlier is, you know, during a response, you have kind of three levels of response. You're going to have those people at the incident command post that are dealing with the tactical level decisions, right? Life safety, do we stop the bad guy? How do we stop the bad guy? How do we put out the fire? Mm. Kind of those kind of things. Um, your EOC is kind of that middle level of response. That's where you have people like me and others who are doing resource coordination. How do we get the incident command post what they need, right? The support, the additional fire, the additional ambulances, whatever it is, um, but also information management. How do we share information with the people that are, uh, you know, affected by this so that they know what to do in this particular disaster. Yeah. And then also, how do we share that information up to our policy group? This would be, you know, the university president, the vice presidents in the city and the county. That would be the county judge, the city mayors, city managers, things like that. How do we share information with them so they can make policy level decisions? Are we evacuating campus? Um, you know, are we setting up shelters? Whatever the case may be. Um, and so my role is kind of that link between incident command and policy group. If you just tuned in, I'm Jay Sokol. You're listening to Brazos Matters. And my guest is Monica Martinez, Director of Emergency Management for Texas A&M University. So I mentioned in the introduction that we're pretty lucky that disasters don't hit this community very often. It's mostly natural disasters, I guess, like flooding and tornadoes and the freeze you talked about. But which ones have you been part of that really taught you something? Um, there's quite a few, I'll say. Um, 
you know, I started my career with emergency management in 2008. We had just moved into our brand new, at the time, emergency operations center in downtown Bryan that we share with the cities in the county. Um, and then we got hit with Gustav and Ike, Hurricane Gustav and Ike. Right. And we had 4,000 evacuees here in Brazos County um, from the coastal jurisdiction. And then we had uh, 400 medical special needs evacuees in Reed Arena hmm. um, for about three weeks. And that was kind of my, you know, first big response and EOC activation. Um, And it really just taught me, um, you know, uh, just so much about how all of these different levels of response and government work together. You know, there's so many pieces uh, when you're talking about a hurricane evacuation, especially. Um, And it taught me that, you know, once the emergency is over, it doesn't mean that everybody gets to go home right here. We, you know, had a couple of days of rain and wind and all of that. And then everyone in our community is ready to go back to normal. But guess what? The the evacuees that we had here didn't have a place to go back to. Yeah. Right. Um, So that was a big lesson, um, you know, from that standpoint. Uh, The next big lesson, I think, was the El Dorado chemical fire of 2009. I remember that. Um, And that to me, um, I was working in the EOC. Uh, We actually had had a... um, an emergency exercise that I had coordinated at Kyle Field. And all of our um, hazmat team for the college station was all together at the exercise. And we had just wrapped up the exercise um, and we were having kind of our debrief when we got the call for the El Dorado chemical fire. So the team happened to already be assembled and ready to go and was able just to get over there, you know, fairly quickly, much more quickly than they would have if they would not have been all together. Um, And, you know, we went over to the EOC and the biggest lesson from that was just uh, the importance of that public information and crisis communication. And, you know, from that point, I kind of made it my mission in the EOC to always be the one to champion what is that public information component. We have got to share the critical information with the public about the actions that they need to be taking to help protect themselves, as well as what's going on with the response. Because it doesn't matter how successful we are at the response side, if we're not communicating effectively, then we have failed. So so for people who may not have lived here back then. Can you briefly describe what that El Dorado incident uh, was all about? Yes. So it, it was a fertilizer plant that we had out in the county. Um, that North caught, part North part of county, right? Yes. Yeah. Um, and it caught fire. I can't remember exactly what caused the fire, but it caught fire. And so we had this kind of toxic plume, if you will, coming out of uh, the off gas burning. And we had to evacuate half of the county. Um, we actually opened up Reed Arena as a kind of temporary shelter. People had to shelter in place. Um, you know, it it caused some upper respiratory kind of irritation in people that were breathing it in. So we did have to evacuate the northern part of the county. Um, and it was the exact same chemical that caught fire and exploded in West Texas, if you remember that explosion. Sure, of course. So we were very fortunate that we didn't have that secondary explosion, Um, but it was a very serious incident. And it was very ominous looking. It was a strangely colored large plume that was blowing, as I recall, toward Bryan College Station. Yes. And I happened to be in an office that was on an upper floor and could see it coming, you know, towards us in the horizon. And that was a very disturbing vision. And uh, I had 
I believe it was caused by maybe a, a spark from a welder or something like that. That's how it went off. But I do remember what you're talking about, that the public information aspect of that was sometimes not consistent. So mm-hmm. people didn't know exactly, should we evacuate? Should we not evacuate? Where do we go? All of that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, again, that to me has always stuck with me. And, and you know, um, since then, I have just been that champion for we have got to get information out to the community. They have to understand what's going on, especially when it comes to personal protective actions. Right. right. What do I need to do to keep myself safe in this particular situation? And so I've made it kind of my mission to partner with our public information officers and our communicators within the city and within the university to make sure that we have a plan for how we're going to communicate effectively in these types of situations. How about through, you mentioned Winter Storm Uri, and then, of course, through the early days of the pandemic. What, what did you learn through those? Um, you know, Winter Storm Uri was definitely a test of your um, <laughs> Uh, continuity plans because we none of us were in the place that we thought we would be when we were handling that situation. Yeah. I can tell you I had I had a small toddler at the time. I was in and out of power. I was one of those people that had rotating power and I was locking myself in the closet trying to send out code maroon messages from my laptop and, you know, making sure to charge my phone in between, um, <laughs> um, you know, when I did have power and things like that. Uh, so, you know, it was definitely a test of of uh, utilizing your resources effectively um, and trying to kind of manage things outside of the norm for that. Um, And also just having that, uh, you know, your disaster kits and making sure that you have enough food and water and things to kind of sustain yourself during that time because we didn't know how long we were going to be, you know, trapped without power. Yeah. How about COVID? Wow. COVID, you know. Because uh, I was on phone calls with you (laughs) um, in my previous role. I mean, we had regular conversations among communicators. And so I have to think that uh, that that was difficult. COVID was definitely a challenge for all of the, you know, healthcare and emergency management personnel involved. I think the big thing with that, again, was communication, right? What is that information, that critical information that we need to be sharing with the community? Um, Because there was so much uh, misinformation out there. So many people had concerns, um, you know, about what was the actual truth out there about what was happening and what they actually needed to be doing. And so I think a lot of that was just figuring out how to share that information from a trusted source, mm-hmm. right? Um, for us locally, that was Dr. Santos with the health district, you know, um, and just really trying to push that message out there as much as possible. And I think you guys did as good of a job as you could ever expect under those circumstances. And and AM really does do a great job of engaging with students, you know, through social media. But as the dad of a 22-year-old Aggie, getting him to pay attention to much else can be pretty difficult. So from an emergency management standpoint, how challenging is it to have 18 to 22-year-olds pay attention to messages of being prepared in the right ways or knowing how to take proper and quick action when something goes down. You know, that is probably one of our biggest challenges. You know, I can work really hard with our first responders and make sure that they attend training and do exercises and all of those things. But 
uh, when it comes to our education outreach component of our program, that's definitely a challenge. And it's not honestly just your 18 to 22 year olds, although they do think that they are invincible when they come to campus. But it's also just our population in general. I feel like we do not have a culture of preparedness, Mm. um, you know, built within our community. Um, People just kind of think, oh, yeah, you know, when they know the storm is coming, that's when they want to run to, you know, the grocery store and buy up the water or buy up the things. Right. And and that's not the time. Yes, that's the time to get some last minute things. But if you have these things already built into your disaster kits or built, you know, saved up at home, then you won't have to be that person that's rushing. Um, and so for us, we we try to do a lot of education outreach. We have a fun uh, social media presence at um, Tamu Prepares is our um, handle on Instagram and Facebook. And we try to put um, information out there in a fun and interactive way for our students. Um, but then also, you know, we work really closely for that just in time information. So we have worked with our social media team here on campus. They make sure to amplify whatever messages come out from Code Maroon or from the emergency management team during an emergency um, to to make sure that we're getting the pertinent information to our campus community um, as much as possible. Yeah. So I know you, from time to time, attend conferences, whether it's somewhere in Texas or in another state, among your peers. What are some of the things that that you and your peers are talking about right now? What are some, some issues that, that may be a bit new or different that you're having to really pay attention to and plan for? You know, I think the biggest issue that we're seeing right now, um, especially have been impacted it by it just recently is are these swatting incidents that we've had um, you know at institutions of higher education explain swatting swatting so these are kind of the the false um, calls that we are getting about acts of violence or bomb threats or things like that Um, and so we experienced this a couple of weeks ago um, at the health science center Um, we've just had several bomb threats Uh, we had one last week here on campus Um, And I think that that is a challenge for us, you know, as we work with our first responders, but also as we work with our community, our campus community, because the more of these we have, um, it's almost like the the boy who cried wolf, right? Mm. At some point, if we're sending out a code maroon every week for this hoax situation that's happening, um, you know, are people going to start to not pay attention to those messages? And right. and so I think that's the the challenge that we have and what we're trying to balance. You know, from a first responder standpoint, we want to treat every um, incident as credible. We want to make sure that we're going out there, that we're doing our due diligence to make sure that, you know, the area is safe. Um, but at the same time, then how do we communicate that in a way that's going to make sel- sense to the public and they're not going to become desensitized to these emergency warnings? Yeah that are happening. What drives something like that? Because when I was way back in the dark ages at, at A&M and the occasional bomb threat would get called in, you knew it was test day. You knew there was a final and somebody hadn't prepared and that's how they, they managed to get out of a class. But what, what is a driver of swatting? You know, I I don't know. Um, this is this is something that's not just happening on campus. Um, it's something that's happening, you know, at high schools. It's something that's happening, you know, across the nation. Um, and sadly, a lot of them are things that are, you know, uh, originating, you know, overseas. People, there's services you can pay to do these things. I mean, it, it's really Ugh. kind of horrible. I mean, not kind of. It is. It's a horrible thing. Um, and it, it is really 
causing a major disruption in, you know, how we respond. Because, again, we don't want to get to that point where our public is feeling like they don't have to take these warnings seriously. Yeah. Okay, so we're we're winding down on our time, and uh, also you and I are going to do a part two that, again, is going to talk about what individuals and families can do to be prepared for a variety of, of disasters or crises. So that is coming up. But give a reminder um, how people can learn more about emergency management at Texas A&M, on, maybe on, on A&M's website, and then where to go to follow you guys on, on social media and that sort of thing. Absolutely. So you can find information about us at www.tamu.edu slash emergency. Um, I will say really quickly that, you know, to make sure that you're up to date on all of our emergency alerts, because again, that's how we are going to communicate with you during a disaster. Um, visit uh, codemaroon.tamu.edu, register your cell phone um, to receive those messages or download the Code Maroon app. It's as simple as downloading the Code Maroon app as well. Um, and then also at Tamu Prepares for Instagram and Facebook. At Tamu Prepares. Mm-hmm. Okay, I have to go do that. I haven't done that yet. Monica Martinez, thank you so much for this talk. Thank you. Yeah. Okay, so this was part one. Again, part two is coming up. Brazos Matters is a production of Aggieland's Public Radio, 90.9 KAMU-FM, a member of Texas A&M University's Division of Marketing and Communications. Our show is engineered today and edited by Matt Dittman. You can learn more about us at kamu.tamu.edu slash radio. Thank you again for joining us. I'm Jay Sokol. Have a great day.